You may be seated. Just a programming note, we had intended to break away from this series next week when we have a big group of women out traveling for the retreat. I'm going to move forward with the series because of a conflict in our schedule. And uh, so just be patient. It'll be out there on Facebook. Uh, you'll see the videos and you can, you can stay, stay with the sermon series. One of the most important uh, messages in the series, I believe, is the one this morning. Uh, there's some vocabulary. <clears throat> there's some study we're going to do this morning that I think is just really revealing uh, of God's heart and God's intentions. As I told you last week, to me, this whole subject lives and dies in the first few chapters of Genesis with what did God intend and what did God create and what was God's uh, intention for uh, men and women and marriage and society. And I think if you can get a hold of that, we can work out the rest of what we're going to discover in the New Testament uh, very shortly. Last week, what we looked at is we looked at the original models that God created, that he designed for humanity. And what we discovered last week is what we already knew, that God designed two uh, distinct but equal genders in the first few chapters of Genesis. Then God designed a marriage whereby the man and the woman became one. And that's the language that keeps popping up in the scripture. They became one. And they lived their lives outside of the control of their parents. It's very important because this keeps popping up in scripture as well. They shall become one and leave father and mother. And they're going to do their own thing as their own family unit. So there's a message also to parents in here. Let, let them go. And don't try to control them. And there's a lot of ways we do that. And the very worst of the worst pops out somewhere between November and December 31st where everybody's being controlled. And you know what I'm saying? There's t- tension in families a lot of times around, around those holidays. They're to live in a close relationship with each other. And the ideal, the, the perfect would be not only in a close relationship with each other, but they're both in a close relationship with God, which helps everyone stay in harmony together. Then we turn to page or two, and by Genesis chapter 3, we saw how the man and the woman sinned against God, and how their sin destroyed not only their relationship between them and God, and they became fallen being sinners, but in the fall they also damaged what marriage was. They hurt their relationships with each other. It went even further than that, according to Genesis 3. The relationship between man and the animal kingdom was destroyed. What it is today is not what it was in Genesis 1 and 2. Also, what got destroyed is how mankind relates to planet Earth. Your relation to planet Earth right now is not what your relationship to planet Earth looked like, Adam and Eve did, in Genesis 1 and 2. The earth brought forth abundantly without them having to work by the sweat of their brow to plow the field, to plant the seed, to harvest the wheat, to grind it, to get it to the factory, to get it to the grocery store, to get it to your kitchen table. All of that process didn't exist. This is all part of the curse that we're having to live out. And the results of sin, bottom line, summary, is the results were catastrophic to planet Earth and to every relationships, uh, relationship that human beings had with each other and with, with anything around them. Thousands of years later, even though Christ came and died for our sins, thousands of years later, 
we are still dealing with the fallout of Genesis chapter number 3. Last uh, year was a, was a stunning year for America uh, with so many uh, sexual abuse claims that have been buried for years, decades, uh, finally coming to light last year after 16 years of silence. Rachel Den Hollander decided to publicly reveal that she had been one of the many sexual abuse victims of the team doctor for the USA Gymnastics team. These things have been buried. They've been hidden. And it's not that the victims didn't reach out for help. It's that when they reached out for help, the people they reached out to <clears throat> silenced them, <clears throat> suppressed the story. Christianity Today interviewed Rachel Den Hollander. She'll be speaking in Dallas, by the way, I think in October. <clears throat> Christianity Today interviewed Rachel, and I just want to give you one paragraph that just blew my mind when I read it. But I know it to be true, so it rang true. Rachel talked about how she went to Scripture uh, to, to find hope, to find God's perspective on what had happened with her, to try to find some closure and be able to move forward. Christianity Today asked Rachel in the interview, these are their words, Rachel, in your impact statement, you mentioned that it took you a long time to reveal your own abuse with other people. Was the church included in that? Christianity Today is asking, Rachel, didn't you go tell the people in your church, someone that you trusted, what you were going through? Rachel responds, yes, church is one of the least safe places to acknowledge abuse because the way abuse is counseled is more often than not damaging to the victim. There's an abhorrent lack of knowledge for the damage and devastation that sexual assault brings into our lives, and it's with deep regret that I say that the church is one of the worst places to go for help. Here's her words. And that's a hard thing for me to say, Rachel said, because I'm a very conservative evangelical Christian. What happened is she went to help and they told her, be quiet. Don't, this is not something we need to talk about. Now, when I read that, I'm just sick in my stomach when I read something like this. And so what I want to say, how this affects me and my leadership and our church, is I want to challenge the Cornerstone family to be a church that's willing to break with the status quo. I want you to be okay with doing things differently than other churches do. That's what I'm saying to you. We should not be silent on abuse. We should not avoid discussions about gender equality Instead, let's decide to be a church that's focused on reversing the curse, not perpetuating the curse. As citizens of God's kingdom, we are called to reflect kingdom values. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the teachings of Jesus, we're called to live as Christ taught us to live in the kingdom of God. We're to live out those values in every sphere of our lives. That means here in the church, that means on the job, not tomorrow, but Tuesday, it means in school, on Tuesday, it means in our neighborhoods, around the family table. As Deuteronomy 6 says, when you rise up, when you lie down, you're supposed to be living out kingdom values continually. And we believe that Christ came down to this earth to restore 
what humanity lost in the fall in Genesis chapter number 3. We believe Christ came to this earth, and if we don't believe this, then what do we believe? We believe Christ came to this earth to die for our sins so that we could restore the relationship we had in Genesis 2 with Almighty God. Amen? We believe that God's kingdom is restorative and that He came to put things right. Now, you know the story of, of Christ, I'm assuming, and so you know He died, rose again, established the church, they're making disciples, and He goes back to heaven, and uh, discipleship goes forward, churches begin to reproduce, but after Jesus went back to heaven, it did not take long until the old model began to creep right back in. Not just society, but it even crept in to Christ's church. Let me just share with you just a few. I had pages, and the staff said, please, Pastor, don't beat everybody to death on Sunday morning with these. Uh, views on, early, on womanhood in the early Christian era. This is St. Augustine of Hippo. What is the difference whether it is in a wife or a mother? It is still Eve the temptress that we must be aware of in any woman. I failed to see what use woman could be to man if one excludes the function of bearing children. Now Augustine is somebody we all study in seminary. Uh, his conversion testimony is wonderful. We quote him, we read his writings, but we would not go to him for marriage counseling. Do you understand what I'm saying? He may be right on theology as were the people who taught you and I in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, may have been right on theology, but they could be way wrong on other aspects of uh, our lives. Tertullian, very famous church father. In pain you shall bring forth children, woman, and you shall turn to your husband and he shall rule over you. God's sentence hangs still over all your sex and his punishment weighs down upon you. You are the devil's gateway, woman. You are the gate to hell. How would you like to go to your pastor for some marriage counseling? And he quote Tertullian, the church father, to you. Well, here's the situation. The woman's always wrong. That's basically what he said. Thomas Aquinas, famous, famous. As regards the individual nature, woman is defective. Do I even need to read the rest of this? Woman is defective and misbegotten. For the active force in the male seed tends to the production of perfect, perfect likeness in the masculine sex. Men are perfect, while the production of woman comes from a defect in the active force. Men are perfect, women are defective. Thomas Aquinas, church father. Men have broad shoulders and narrow hips, and accordingly they have intelligence. <laughs> women have narrow shoulders and broad hips... Women ought to stay at home. The way they were created indicates this, for they have broad hips and a wide fundament to sit upon. <laughs> Keep house and bear and raise children. Who said it? Listen, we just spent 10 weeks teaching, 14 weeks teaching through the book of Romans where we quoted Martin Luther's, Martin Luther's commentary on Romans multiple times in that study. When it comes to redemption, the just shall live by faith, spot on. Do not go to him for marriage counseling. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm trying to set a precedent here with you that you know you can't follow everyone completely blindly. You have to take the good and you have to parse the bad, especially among the church fathers. 
John Knox, the great reformer, woman in her greatest perfection, was made to serve and obey man. You're at your best, women, when you're serving and obedient to to the men. That's John Knox. It is an ascertained physiological fact that the actual capacity of the average male brain is considerably greater than that of the female brain. M. Burroughs, in an article arguing against women attending college. Well, how is their brain going to get bigger if you don't let them go to school? You see the problem? Men should not sit and listen to a woman, even if she should say admirable things or even saintly things. That is of little consequence since they, since they came from the mouth of a woman. Adamantius origin, church father, 6th century. Take up a stick and beat her. Not in rage, Spencer. Not in rage. But out of charity and concern for her soul. So that the beating will rebound to your merit and to her good. Friar Cherubino on the rules of marriage. I wouldn't go to Friar Cherubino, ladies and gentlemen, for any marriage counseling. Uh, because he's going to say, well, she just need to take a stick and beat her. For her good, not out of hate, but for her, her good. Now, I could just go on and on, and the staff says, please don't do it any further. You'll, you'll, as you can plainly see, Christian history, not secular history, Christian history has not been very kind to womanhood. And what we really want to try to ascertain this morning is whether these men are repeating the broken models of a fallen society, or are these men repeating the words that are reflective of God's heart towards womanhood? Are they repeating the brokenness of a fallen society, even though they're Christian people? Are they perpetuating the curse, even though they're born-again people, because of ignorance or misunderstanding or having been mistaught or not getting what it's all about for whatever reason? Are they perpetuating the curse of a fallen society? Or are these Christian men actually stating what is God's heart towards womanhood? Now, this is the big picture I'm trying to get you to see in these weeks. What is the Holy Spirit bearing witness to in your heart when you're confronted with this? Do you feel the tension between seeing the actual words of the men who are translating the Bible from Greek into the languages of the Europeans, which ultimately means you. These are the people translating. These are the lenses they're looking through. This is the bias they bring to the table. Do you understand how they might flip a pronoun that's feminine to masculine here and there? you understand how they might make an alteration that fits with their worldview? Let's go a step further. Let's see if we can ascertain what God's heart for women looks like. Let me challenge you always as you're reading the Bible. You have your own lenses as well, your own bias. But every once in a while when you see women in the Scripture, take your, take your, try to set your bias aside and really try to ascertain and discover what God is aiming at when he talks about women in the Scripture. And I think the most important place to go is Genesis chapter number 2, which is where we're going to go. 
and try to ascertain what God was aiming at in his design of the very first woman and for women and womanhood as, as a whole, when he created Eve and he described what he was doing, what was God's intent? Genesis 2, verse number 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I think this is a verse, if you grew up in church, you're going to be familiar with. Remember the old King James, I will make a helpmeet for him, a helper fit for him. Now, let me deal with the word helper, because this is God saying, I see the problem, I'm going to fix a problem, and, and here it is. I will make a helper for Adam. The word, English word, helper, comes to us from a Hebrew word, Aitzer. Aitzer. It's a noun, it has a verb counterpart, but the noun Aitzer is translated is as helper into the English in almost, in most Bibles. Helper, Aitzer, right there in the Hebrew, does not picture a woman making dinner and cleaning the house. Okay? When you look up the word in the Hebrew dictionary, it means a helper, it means a rescuer, someone who comes running when the people cry out for help. Just think about that for a minute. A rescuer, a strong defender, an aitzer drops everything to come and save those who are in need. An aitzer is a warrior, a defender, a hero. Now, surely you guys can understand hero because our culture is fascinated uh, these days by superheroes. I guess it always has been, but now with all the movies, we're just fascinated by superheroes. We seem to be riveted by the idea of being rescued by a member of the Justice League. Some band of guardians who come to the rescue of those who are being mistreated and those who are in need. These are noble defenders, protectors, using their special powers and abilities to help those who cry out. Now you're understanding what the word or means. This is what the definition is. So is this word used anywhere else in the Old Testament? I'm glad you asked. Yes, it is. The word Aitzer shows up 21 times in the Old Testament. Twice, it's a reference to Eve, the first woman. And 17 times, it's a direct reference to Almighty God. When God said, I will make Aitzer for Adam, 17 times of the 21 times this word is about to be used, God is referring to himself. She is someone more like a God than a maid. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let me show you a verse where this is used for God. Psalms 115, verse 9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their Aitzer. Help. See, it doesn't mean maid. It doesn't mean uh, uh, do the laundry. It didn't mean that God was going to come and vacuum for Israel. Does that make sense? Hear, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their eighth sir and their shield. It means defender and strength is what it means. Ten, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help, their eighth sir and their shield. Eleven, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord, for he is their eighth sir and their shield. 
Is that affecting your view of womanhood? Because that's the same word used for Eve in Genesis chapter number 2. Let me read you another one. Psalm 121, verse 1, a song of sense. I will lift up mine eyes to the hills. From where does my answer come? Where does my help come from? My help comes, my answer comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Same word used for Eve. I will make an answer for Adam. Like I am for Israel, I'll make an answer for Adam because it's not good that he should be alone. I will make a power, I will make a strength which corresponds to the man, fit for him, like him. I will make a strength and a power that corresponds to the man. God's plan for gender relations was a partnership in which the man and the woman functioned as a team of equals. The ideal that woman was made as a domestic assistant should end here in this service today. You can bury that forever. The ideal that woman was made to be a domestic for Adam, you can bury that notion right now. Maybe you've watched too much Leave it to Beaver or something like that, I don't know. But that's an American idealized invention that is not Aetzer. That is not what God intended when he created woman. The Hebrew word, Abed, Different word. The Hebrew word abed is used 800 times in the Old Testament. It is the word for servant, domestic servant, or slave. It's used 800 times, and that is not the word God used in Genesis chapter number 2. If God had wanted to use domestic servant, he could have used it right here in Genesis 2. I will make a domestic for Adam so that she can darn his socks and put buttons back on his clothes and and cook his meal. That is not what God said. And God could have done that. 800 times it's used in the Old Testament. It is not this word and it has no connection to Azar. Azar is a strong rescuer who drops everything and comes to the help of those who are crying out in distress. And there's a thing in the sky and someone comes running. That's Azar. That's exactly what the biblical definition is. Now, here's the tension. I grew up in a tradition that placed emphasis on the silence and subordination of women. That's the tradition I grew up in. So I'm just being transparent with you in this series. And I'm saying to you, the congregation, you have to be patient with me. And I'll try to be patient with you. Because I discovered very late in my life that the Baptist traditions that I grew up with simply do not align with what the Scripture is teaching. And that is where I'm at. And I don't always know what to do about that. But that's where I find myself. So, let me ask you. We don't seem to have any trouble with roles for manhood. A man can be a chef, or he can cook at home, whichever that is. CEO, Bible teacher before thousands of men and women. President of the United States, great father, serve in the military and lead people into battle. Be a sports superstar or a famous part of our culture. School teacher. 
I'm thinking, I'm thinking a lot of these encompass what Adam was. He's king of the world. First person here. He's very intellectual. He named all the animals. He was a genius in zoology and botany. May have been a little bit like this guy right here. Perfect specimen. Created in the image of God at the very hand of God and breathed into by the breath of God. And none of us have a problem with that. But for every male role, there's a female counterpart. And this is what we have a problem with. And I don't know why we do. Can a woman be the queen of England? Yes or no? So should, could she be president? Well, sure she could. Sure she could. So could a woman be CEO? Or be a chef? Or take care of her kids? Could she lead troops into battle? You seem less confident. Absolutely, she can and she does in America every day. Can she be a sports superstar? Can she be a pop icon and entertain thousands of men and women? Sure. She could be a great intellectual mind who teaches others. Listen, she could be the counterpart to Superman, Wonder Woman. The only issue we've got is this one right here. It seems like, doesn't it? Now we're going to get to that. I'll get you over to 1 Timothy and to 1 Corinthians in another couple of weeks. But I just want you to, I want you to wrestle with your own vision, your own biblical understanding of what can a woman be. And I want you to keep asking yourself, what can a woman be? Well, for me, that argument takes me to Genesis 2. What did God design a woman to be? When he created the first woman, he said, I'm going to make Aether for Adam a strength and power, a defender, a hero equally to him. Well, if he's Superman, she's Wonder Woman. That's all I'm saying. She is his counterpart. The one who needs help is the one who needs the rescuer, by the way. Back in the old days when they were teaching us, it meant help meet. And Adam needed a servant. They just misunderstood the whole text completely. The one who needs help is the one in the text that God's trying to rescue. Adam needed something. And Eve had something to offer Adam. Adam had no partner. He was lonely. That's clearly implied in the text. What's clearly implied in Genesis 2 is there was no one like him. It talks about the animals, it talks about the planet, and Adam is lonely. There's no one like him. Let me explain what that means. There is no intellectual equal to Adam. Uh, we, we've taught our boys as we raise them to be men, smart is sexy. Smart is sexy. You find someone who's smart. Ask God to bring you somebody that's smart. Because there's... Uh, you need stimulating intellectual conversation for the next 50 years. Smart is sexy. And what I'm saying is Adam had no one to, to stimulate him intellectually. With baboons, he seemed not to have any riveting conversations that could satisfy his need. There was no emotional equal who felt what Adam felt. There was no spiritual equal 
who related to God in the way that an eternal soul that Adam possessed related to God. There were other living things, but there was no other living thing physically like him, walking upright on two feet, that resembled him, that was his counterpart. So God said, it's not good that he he should be alone. Let me make a date, sir, for him. And God made Eve equal to Adam. When you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, there is not even a hint of inferiority in the Scripture. There's not even a hint, once you understand what the word means, of inferiority written into the text. I've tried to imagine and I I struggle. Uh, The man who invented modern anesthesiology and brought us the way we do surgery in America today, the man who invented that invented it after reading Genesis chapter 2, by the way. Hey, Adam, wake up. Here, you need to drink something. No, slowly, slowly. No, don't try to stand up. Listen, dude, you had surgery. Can you imagine God's conversation with Adam? Dude, you just had surgery. Don't just jump up here. You drink some water for a minute. Here's a couple of saltines. Do you feel like you could eat something? You okay? How's the nausea? Coming out of surgery can be rough. Yeah, you had surgery, dude. You're the first. You're going to have a little scar right there, but it's, it's all good. Listen, Adam, feel like you can stand up? Okay, come here. I want to introduce you to someone. She's new here to planet Earth. And when God introduced them together, Adam, here's Eve, Eve, this is Adam. This is the guy I was telling you about that I made in my image and my likeness. Adam, this is the woman that I made from your side in my image. She is your eighth, sir. She is your intellectual equal she's your physical equal she's your spiritual equal and Adam's eyes begin to get big when he sees Eve and Adam was so overjoyed when he met Eve Genesis 2:23 records his babbling then the man said this is a bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh finally Someone like me. We are literally the same flesh and blood. She was taken from me. This is my Aetzer. This is my counterpart. We do not know how long they lived together like that. We don't know how long things ran along. But here's what we do know. After the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter number 3, everything was turned upside down. The women were treated as possessions. Women were victims of horrific abuse. After you've turned a few books in your Bible, passages like Judges chapter number 19 are among the most horrific and gruesome in all of the Scripture on how women were mistreated. Even in the era of the patriarchs, you know, the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all these guys, even in the patriarchal, hierarchical setup of the Old Testament, God gave us glimpses of His heart for womanhood. Even in the midst of this chauvinism and misogyny and, 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 and the ruling over the women in the fall, God gave us little glimpses of his true heart, his true intent, the way things were in the beginning before man fell. And when a woman was the right man for the job, I should say it that way, when a woman was the right person for the job, which she often was, 
God did not hesitate to use a woman. And the results were always very impressive in the scriptures. The first person to lead congregational singing in your Bible was a woman named Miriam. She is also called in Exodus 15, 20, Miriam. I'll let you read it with your own eyes. Miriam the Miriam the prophetess, which means she was a prophet. She prophesied. She preached. She spoke publicly. She's the first worship leader, public worship leader of men and women in the Old Testament. Exodus 15, verse 20. One of the early leaders in the history of Israel, in the nation of Israel, was a woman named Deborah who led the men, led the troops into battle. In Judges 4, 4, Deborah is called a prophetess. One who prophesies, one who speaks for God, judging the people. I've already shared with you in the days of King Josiah, they remodeled the temple, and as they knocked this wall down and moved that wall out and began their remodel, when they opened up a cavity, they found a hidden portion of the Word of God where the priests evidently had hid it from invading armies or secreted it away so nobody could steal this portion of the Bible, and it had been lost to them. They had not read it. They did not know this particular portion of Scripture existed. And the king called the high priest in. The high priest said, I don't know how to interpret. I've never seen this portion of Scripture. We need a prophet. And this was in the days that some of the prophets were contemporary to. Men who were writing the books of the Old Testament. The prophets. Talking about Isaiah, Jeremiah. These guys. Many of them were alive in this moment. They did not call for the men. Instead, the high priest said, we need to go find Huldah. She's the best interpreter of Scripture we've got. Go get Huldah, 2 Kings 22, verse 14. And Hilkiah the priest and the leaders of the cabinet, it lists their names, they went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikva, etc. So somebody could explain the Bible to the high priest, the priest, the cabinet, and the king. Women like Queen Esther played essential roles in saving her nation from genocide. Now, God undeniably used women in the Old Testament era. And whenever he used them, the results are always quite impressive. What about the New Testament? How did Christ treat women? You'll have to find this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as you see Jesus interact with females. In the days of Jesus... The contemporaries of Jesus, meaning the Jewish leaders in Israel, they prayed a prayer every day. They did these, you know, like Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed are you. They prayed the same prayer every day. They had several times a day that they went for prayer. And one of the prayers they prayed every day is, oh God, I thank you that I am not a woman. You don't think these guys have any bias, do you? God, I thank you that I am not a woman or, or a Gentile or a slave. God, I thank you that I'm a man and that I'm a Jew. You don't, you don't think these guys have any, any bias at all, do you? I mean, how would you like to go to these guys for marriage counseling? In the days when Jesus peers are praying, God, I thank you I've not born a woman, the Jewish leaders were forbidden by the Talmud, not the law of Moses, the law they invented. Okay, the law they invented. The Jews were forbidden by the law to teach the word of God or to discuss it publicly with a woman. Let me read you from the Jewish Talmud. 
Out of respect to the congregation, a woman should not herself read in the law. It is a shame for a woman to let her voice be heard among the men. The voice of a woman is filthy nakedness. I don't think I'd go to these people for marriage counseling. Uh, I think we've got bias. But when Christ came, this was his environment. And when Christ came, did he go along with this type of philosophy and tell the women, shut up, your voice is not allowed to be heard, or did Christ introduce something else? That's what you need to ask yourself as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I'll give you the answer. He introduced something very different. As a matter of fact, Christ overturned all the social norms for gender relations, and he established new ones that accurately reflected God's heart towards womanhood. For example, in John... Talmud says, don't discuss theology with the woman. It says, Gentiles not to talk to, to, to Jews not to talk to Gentiles. It says, men not to talk to women. It says, don't discuss philosophy. There's all kinds of rules in that made-up man law. What did Jesus do? Well, in John chapter 4, he talked to an immoral woman about theology, about worship, about her relationships with men, and ultimately about the state of her eternal soul. She came to believe on Jesus Christ and subsequently ran right back into Sychar of Samaria and led her city to Christ. The results were impressive. John chapter 8, Jesus pointed out that the men who wanted to stone the woman taken in adultery were just as guilty as the woman they wanted to kill. True? Dropped their stones and walked away. Woman, where I have no accusers, neither do I. Condemn thee, go and sin no more. John chapter 12 Jesus declared that Mary's act of worship was so meaningful and so timely and so appropriate that her act of worship would go down immortalized in history. That wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached throughout the whole world for time immemorial, her act of worship would be mentioned also. About what man is that ever said? None. He welcomed women into his inner circle of friends and disciples. It was unheard of in his generation. But he welcomed these women into his group of disciples. They're with him traveling about, caring, ministering, uh, uh, as benefactors, all types of roles they're playing in the story of Jesus Christ. His female disciples were the very last ones to leave the cross, Mark chapter 15. His female disciples were the first disciples to reach the tomb on Sunday morning. Mark chapter number 16. Christ's first resurrection appearance was to the female disciples, not the men. The first human being commissioned and sent to preach the gospel of the risen Christ was Mary Magdalene. Mary it is me. I want you to go and preach that Christ has risen from the dead. Go tell the disciples and Peter, I will meet them in Galilee. Jesus' example set a completely new standard for men and women to fellowship together in these relationships. And as you're going to see next week, as I take it a little bit further, 
Jesus didn't dismantle the existing society and start a women's liberation movement and said, everybody get your signs and let's go down to the wailing wall and let's all, let's picket and let's protest and let's overthrow the societal norm. That's not the way Jesus did it. You'll see more next week. Jesus met people where they were, broken society, male-dominated, misogynistic, hierarchical, and he worked with what they had. That was the system they had. He showed his people how to work with the system until the kingdom of God could radically influence culture. And as the kingdom of God begins to expand now, listen, Europe got Christianized after about 200, 300 years. Christianity is overtaking complete European cultures and when that began to happen God began to slowly bring back his design through the kingdom of God of what he wanted human relationships to be and this shift is dramatically summed up by the apostle Paul let me show you what it looks like Galatians 3:26. for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ now there is neither Jew nor Greek, not in this body of Christ, not in the, there's no Jew nor Greek, there's no slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, but you are all what? One. You're all one in Christ Jesus. That's what I want to keep getting you to. You know, that's what Adam said. She is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and therefore we shall be one, and we shall leave our father and mother, and we'll go do our own thing together as a family unit. You know, that's reflective of the second page of your Bible right there. They're one in Christ. Paul goes on to say, same passage in Galatians, that Christ's death not only began to restore the race, but his death redeemed us from the very curse of sin, Galatians 3.13, just a few verses later, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, on a cross. He became the curse for us. Why? To reverse the curse. That's what I want you to see, to reverse the curse. Since Christ has died for our sins, we cannot insist that women must forever pay for Eve's transgression with silence and submission. If you do, you're nullifying what Jesus did on the cross. You're saying, no, he didn't pay for all of our sins. We have to keep punishing them. We have to keep, we have to keep on. Why? I thought Christ became a curse so we could reverse everything that happened in Genesis 3 in the kingdom of God. Now you have to decide what your theology is on that. But in Luke chapter number 10, we read of Jesus enjoying fellowship in the home of Mary, Martha, and the resurrected Lazarus. We've all heard sermons about Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and Martha serving busily as a domestic in the kitchen, in the background. Mary's in there sitting at the feet of Jesus. Mary's place at Jesus' feet in the family room was where the males sat in that culture. When Mary came and sat at the feet of Jesus, that's where Peter and John and Andrew and Bartholomew and Thaddeus, that's where the men were sitting at the feet of their rabbi. And he's 
speaking and they're having conversation. Mary comes in and sits right there with them. What she's saying is this is where I belong. Martha bursts into the room and says, Jesus, tell Mary to assume her place as a domestic. I need help in the kitchen. She openly defied the social norms. And then Jesus praised her for doing so. Here's what he said. She has chosen the better part. She chose the part of being Christ's disciple with the clear intent that she would have some role in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus challenged the social norms of his day, which tended to regard women as only a domestic servant. Certainly, there's nothing wrong with cooking and cleaning. I mean, if you want to be healthy, I don't assume no one here wants to live in filth, amen? If you want to be organized and you want to be healthy, there's nothing wrong with cooking and cleaning. Domestic duties are a healthy and necessary part of life for all of us, which includes men and women. I expected the women might get a little amen going right there. Uh, If you come for premarital counseling here at Cornerstone or you come for marriage counseling, we have a process we'll take you through called Simbus. Some of you have already been through the Simbus process. In our premarital or marital counseling, one of the things we really focus on is helping couples find their way on this issue of what is expected as far as domestic Uh, roles and responsibilities what does that look like in our marriage because I think every every marriage going into marriage you you should be talking you don't want to wake up a week later and say what you don't know how to change the oil seriously plop 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 plop. honey we've got a flat he's like called triple a she's like what you don't know how to change a tire I'll tell you what kind of crazy marriage things we get to counsel Things like this. What? You don't know how to cook? She's like, no, my mom never taught me. We eat out every meal. When you get married and then you realize your expectations are not what you, things are not what you thought they were going to be, it turns into a million little cuts (laughs) that start bleeding the marriage dry. So when we have lots of conversations about domestic issues and Every marriage should be having open conversations about what's expected from women and from men. What I'm doing this morning is simply I want to challenge you to encourage your daughters to strive to be something more than domestic servants. And if you have a daughter, I hope you appreciate the risk I take as a pastor to have these series of messages. But I want you who have daughters to understand you should be as a parent setting the sights. Much high. Nothing wrong with cooking and cleaning. We all need to do it. It's a part of our lives. But if you have daughters, I want you to set your sights much higher for your daughters. And I want you to teach your daughters that they were created by the hand of God to be answer. Strong, rescuing heroes. Not weak Women of small intellect who need to stay at home and wash the... That is not what God designed. He said, I will make Aether for Adam, 
I will make heroes who can respond with strength and power when people cry for help. Now I want you just to imagine this morning what a church like ours might look like. What a church might look like if we had a community of spiritual heroes that were focused on investing their lives as Aetzer in the lives of other people. What would a church look like where men and women, supermen and wonder women, came together in unity for the cause of Christ and served sacrificially to get the gospel to the people who were crying out for help and to get Jesus into the marriage that's about to disintegrate and to get Christ as the center of the home filled with abuse and shouting and violence Imagine what life would look like for us if we lived up to God's high ideals for what he created us to be. This is what he created us to be. I don't know why instinctively you love a hero, but you do. And I don't even know if I could define it, but you know it when you see it. I don't know why we're fascinated with superheroes, but we are. Almost all of them have something to do with mythology or gods or, 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 you know, other things that you know to be completely false. It doesn't fit with your Christian narrative. But still, we love the idea of the superhero. Why? Because really, that's what God created you to be. That's why. The perfect man. I don't know if Adam could fly or not. I have no information on that. But if he could, he'd be Superman then, okay? And I don't know what you imagine when you imagine Eve, but I imagine Wonder Woman stepping out from behind the tree And Jesus saying, Superman, I want you to meet Wonder Woman. And together you're going to build a race of people. Go and fill the earth. Procreate. Enjoy your sexuality. Enjoy your freedom. You can do whatever you want. Just stay away from this one thing over here. But listen, this is what it's all about. You're the king and queen of the planet. Reproduce a super race of people that are made in the image of God. They are supernatural people like their God. And then Satan showed up. And I guess you know how that story goes for us. But I want you to go back and understand what God created. Let me ask you a very personal question. What about you personally? When I start preaching a series like this, one of the first things people tell me is, man, I just don't know what my dad's going to say. And I I appreciate that, you, you wanting to keep harmony. I appreciate that. But I want you to raise your sights a little bit this morning and ask yourself, what is the Holy Spirit saying? What is God bearing witness to in your heart that's undeniable this morning? How about you? Are you ready to reverse the curse? I am, and I pray that you are. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning. Let's, let's make a decision about what we've heard I want you to make a decision this morning to follow God's heart. I've always felt like if I could just understand what God intended, if I could just understand what God created, if I could just understand what he was aiming at in Genesis, then I would know what we need to be doing right now. I want you to really wrestle with that this morning. Would you be willing just to say to God in prayer this morning, God, whatever your heart is, that's what I want my heart to be. God, whatever your attitudes are about marriage, that's what I want my attitude to be. God, whatever your attitudes are about sexuality, about freedom, about boundary, God, I want my heart to be aligned with your heart and my mind to be aligned with your mind. 
And God, if I'm not in alignment with you, then transform me. Renew me by the transforming trans, in, in my mind, in my heart. Change my perception. Change the way I'm thinking to be in line with you, Almighty God. Maybe you're like me. I've been very open about how I've struggled with my baggage. If you're struggling with your own baggage this morning, then talk it out with God. You just have to say, God, maybe I need to set down my baggage and move forward. Maybe I need to say I was wrong. Maybe I need to say I'm sorry. Maybe I need to apologize. Maybe I need to... Whatever you need to do, just talk it out with God. He knows how to bring you to the right spot. Remember, God's first response towards mankind was not a radical renovation of society. God's first response was to deal with sin. Because whatever brokenness entered into the human race and into our minds and into our hearts and into our souls was because of sin. It was the problem. Sin is the first thing to be dealt with, and God sent His Son to be the sacrifice for our sins. Through Him, you have access to a restored relationship with God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And through Him, you can come to the Father for a relationship today. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, let's deal with the sin issue first. That's the starting point for all of us. Bible says if you would confess that you're a sinner and you would believe on Jesus Christ, Romans 10 says if you will call upon him for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved if you're ready to call upon him why don't you do it right now, let me lead you pray like this, dear God I confess to you that I'm a sinner I need a savior and I know you are the savior of the world Jesus I believe you came to this earth lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again to be my Savior. And this morning, I want to put my faith and trust in you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins, cleanse me, wash me, make me clean and whole and righteous in your sight. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior come into my life and be the king of my life from this day forward God thank you for reversing the curse in my life today thank you for restoring my relationship with God today God now for all the social aspects that need to change in my life God day by day I pray that you would continue to let me grow as your disciple this is my prayer In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen. Let's stand to our feet.